consulting together what we will present at this Bible school. And the subject, who shall remain or who will remain on the battlefield, is one that came together as an endeavor to study the book of Deuteronomy and extract from it encouraging words because there's more than letter of the law. Uh, as we understand that it is the spirit of the law that the children of Israel fail to see. So what about these nine verses that we have read? A lot, my brothers and friends. We live in an age where no one seems to want to take responsibility for their actions. They excuse everything away. Their crisis is always the result of someone pressuring them, someone putting stumbling blocks in their way, someone not raising them right, someone not giving them uh, the right resources and material things, always excuses. And we live in a culture that is teaching our young ones to blame everything around them. Uh, in my workplace, there's this great outcry as accidents happen around the workplace that you can't dummy proof the warehouse. You, you, you can't foresee and put bumpers everywhere. You can't write warnings and, and guidelines all over the warehouse. So people have to take responsibilities for their actions. Isn't it said in the scriptures that every man shall give an account to God before the judgment seat? There will be no alibi. There will be no witnesses. Uh, there will be no excuse making the books will be open and it is what it is and so in reading these first nine verses a code of ethics for the battlefield is what we have here a code of ethics for the battlefield we are called to consider or to count the cost we are being advised to become spiritual accountants we are asked very strongly and very firmly, will your anchor hold in the storms of life? We are being asked, what do you value more? We are being shown the dilemma of trying to have two masters. And we are seeing that the opportunity is being provided to stay or find an excuse to leave the battlefield. And finally, number eight, getting our priorities right. That is all in these nine verses. If anyone tells me that they can become bored reading the scriptures, I will say that they did not listen to Brother Kitson this morning, where he advised us that good Bible reading is to ask good questions. Ask good questions. Do not be fearful to question God. Habakkuk did it. Moses did it. Jonah did it. Jesus himself going up to Golgotha. Father, can this cup be moved? So we, 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 are, we are told and encouraged to ask questions. But my dear friends, don't ask the question and then be slothful about finding the answers. Don't fail to pray Pray to God for guidance in finding the answers. And finally, don't let, don't let us be afraid when we find the answers. 
Now, we are given a, in verse 1, when thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and you see all of these array of armies and strongholds, and you see the weapons of the wicked that we are told about in Galatians chapter 6, and who we fight against. Make no mistake, brethren and friends. We are in a battle. We are in a spiritual war. We are contending against the seed of the serpent. We are up against the descendants of Cain, of Nimrod, the seed of the serpent, of Babylon. And we are the seed of the woman. The descendants of Abraham are seeking to become the descendants of Abraham. We are Jerusalem, Mount Zion. We are the children of the free woman. We are seeking to not be retaken into bondage. And those of us who are listening tonight, who have not chosen a side as yet, I will pray that at the end of this lesson, this class, this talk, you will see that the time is fast approaching and that a decision has to be made because only one side will be victorious. And we know which side will be victorious because the lessons through scriptures point to the seed of the woman being victorious in this battle. So let us not be like Elijah's servant, cry out in fear when we see the horses and the chariots surrounding us because he who is on our side is greater the army, the resources are greater on our side. Now, this message, the Lord will be on their side when the message was given to Israel by the officers. This was none other than the angel of God's presence that we are told about in Exodus chapter 23. In whom God says he placed his name. He was a powerful angel. Some brother has, and some Bible scholars has concluded that this was Michael the archangel. The archangels are one of the most powerful of the hierarchy of angels. And we only have to look at what he did to Sennacherib and his 185,000. The lessons we have heard over this weekend and what this same age angel did in Egypt blows your mind. Here's an angel that rolled back the Red Sea. Here's an angel that decimated Egypt. Here's an angel that destroyed nations that were much stronger than the children of Israel, battle hardened in our nations. And so he says, don't be afraid of them. In our times, in our world, we see the powers that are rare out there the technology. We see the philosophy of their, of their thinking. And it seems as though that we can't overcome. They seem to be more on their side than on our side. They seem to be more successful than us. They seem to be always winning in the courts, in the battlefield, in the schools, in the homes. They always seem to be winning and prevailing. And so, yes, my friends, the officer speaks to us when he says, when thou see their horses and their chariots and the people more than thou be not afraid of them. 
Let us translate that into dialogue and language of our times. Let us forget the horses and the chariots and the, pe and, and, uh, the people that are more than us. We know, we understand that. When you see the crowds that are massed to see a concert or a football game or a cricket match or a soccer match, when you see the crowds that go to hear uh, uh, singers, hip-hop singers and Hollywood stars, their crowds are larger than us and it dismays us. Sometimes it weakens our hearts. When you see the crowds that follow the false prophets, the angel of Christ's presence is telling us, don't be dismayed. Don't be afraid. Verse 2 of Deuteronomy chapter 20 tells us, it shall be that when ye come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people. Now I want you to hear and understand something. In verse 5, the officers were commissioned or directed to speak the words we read in verse 1 to 4 and verse 5 to 9. The officers told them, what man is there that built a new house? What man is there that planted a vineyard? What man is there that betrothed a wife? And if there be any that is fearful and weak-hearted and faint-hearted, Go back home. I want you to understand and ponder this fact that I'm going to lay out before you now. My friends, the officer had no idea, absolutely no idea. He was not a mind reader. He was not the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not God that could see the hearts of men. He had no idea who had built a new house. He had no idea who had planted a vineyard. He had no idea who had betrothed a wife and certainly had no idea who was fearful. So I ask you the question tonight. Who among the crowds on the battlefield would decide and make the decision that they fell in one of those four categories? The officers? Absolutely not. It was the individual on the battlefield who in his mind would say, I have planted a vineyard. The officer made his speech. He gave me an exemption. I'm going back to my vineyard. I have planned to build a new house. I have not yet uh, enjoyed the labors of my hand. I'm going back to the battle, going back home to my new house. I have married a wife. I'm going back to be with my wife, lest I die in battle and do not consummate my marriage. And then the fearful will be the one who say. I can't stand this battle. My knees knock. I'm afraid. I'm a coward. I'm going home. That every individual made that decision. And you know what they were doing, my dear friends? They were saying of themselves, either the vineyard, the house, and the wife was more important than the battle. And then it will be those who are weak and feeble who will say, I can't endure this journey. I'm turning aside and getting out of the way. But all boiled down to the individual. The officer did not go through the crowd and say, you, leave the battlefield. You, leave the battlefield. He did not do that. This was a responsibility and accountability on the individual. He determined that in his own mind and walked away from the battlefield. No one drove him from the battlefield. 
So he could not blame the officers. The officers were just a messenger. They lay out the terms. But you know what struck me as very interesting when I read that? And some of you may have already been moving forward ahead. You remember Jesus gave a parable about a wedding banquet? They usually sing it at Bible camp. They have words. I have married a wife. I bought me a cow. We usually sing it at youth camps. And we have a jolly good time singing it. But when I read that parable of the Lord Jesus Christ, or a matter of fact, when I read these words, I went straight across to the parable of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26 to 33. If any man come to me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says of the wedding banquet, he was wrath. He said to his servant, go ye out into the highways and the byways and compel the others, the lame and the blind and the hard. Bring them in. For those were not extended and offered to the battlefields. But now he's going and extend the offer to them and give them an opportunity to come in. But none of those who got the invitation would be welcome. So I asked myself in reading that, was Jesus contradicting the law? Something we clearly know that he was dedicated to not do? Because in the law, they were given exemptions. They were given opportunity to leave. Jesus says, as it were, it appears, you don't have the exemptions. The key here is to ask wise questions. Jesus was not contradicting the law. Jesus was bringing out the spirit of the law. The matter that we just introduced earlier was what Jesus was zeroing in on. He says very clearly that you have to love the things that you are leaving the battlefield for less than the battle. You have to love them less. The individual that built a house, married a wife, planted a vineyard, still had the option. No one knew. He still had the option to remain on the battlefield. You know who was such an individual? Do anyone recall Uriah? David tried so many ways to bribe him. To go back onto the battlefield. Here was a man that married a beautiful woman Bathsheba. And he left her. And he went about the Lord's business. And I'm persuaded to believe. That this was not even a descendant. Of the Abrahamic genealogy. He was sort of what we call. A proselyte. Uriah the Hittite. And this man understood full well. That his love for God. His commitment to remain. Among the ecclesia of God was stronger that he could not be persuaded to stay with his beautiful wife. He went out and fought against Ammon. So here was a man who had the same exemption. No one would have blamed Uriah for staying home with Bathsheba. They might want to relitigate the matter and say, had he stayed home with his wife, David would not have slept with her, etc., etc. The matter has been already adjudicated. It has already been settled. Let's not go back and play God and adjudicate, adjudicate the matter all over. The point is, 
Here was an example, and there are hundreds of other examples of like manner of where the choice to remain on the battlefield against the seed of the serpent and contend, as Jude says, earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. You know what, Jesus, some says he has some exceptional divine powers. And yes, God gave him the spirit without measure. But perhaps we can better understand Jesus and his success to following his father's will. That he remained on the battlefield. There were so many opportunities. So many temptations to waver and to move Jesus from the battlefield. But Jesus focused on the mission his father has given him. He came to crucify and destroy flesh. He came to offer that perfect sacrifice that he might redeem man from destruction and the grave. And when he was obedient to his father's will, even up to the moment of Golgotha, and the temptation and the flesh came against him. Father, can this cup be removed? He says, not my will, but thy will be done. He remained on the battlefield to the cross. When on the cross and the jeers and the mockers tell him, come down if you be the son of God. You save others, you can't save yourself. Come off the battlefield. Show us that you are the Christ. If you could come from the cross. They did not know that by Jesus remaining on the cross, he was remaining on the battlefield. It was not over until he crucified flesh. Hebrews 2 verse 14 tells us that he came that he might destroy sin in the flesh, the fleshly nature of Adam, thereby giving us hope. You know who are never, who are others who remain on the battlefield? We are told about the Rechabites. Their father enjoined them into an oath. He told them, don't buy no land, don't build no, no houses out of stone, don't drink no alcohol. All, all up until the going into captivity into Babylon, these, this family remained loyal to their commitment and remained as a nomadic life. Did they not waver from the battlefield their father set them on? And so God enjoined them into an everlasting covenant relationship. In the house of Israel and the covenant of Abraham. He says, I give you less stringent orders to follow. And you couldn't keep them. And these men who are given exceptional and stringent orders to abstain from wine, abstain from worldly wealth, abstain from uh, building houses and living opulent lives. They were able to maintain that. What about the Gibeonites? They entered into an oath to remain on the battlefield as drawers of water and hewers of wood. And God knows the scriptures tells us that these men, this family, this tribe, this nation that joined themselves to Israel. Had more than enough opportunities to break that covenant vow. What about the occasions when, they, when Israel, their, their bondsmen, those who they had sworn themselves 
to remain hewers of wood and drawers of water, what when their cap captors were themselves in captivity? What when Assyria took them captive? What when all the surrounding nations, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Midianites, what when they put them under bondage, the children of Israel, did the Gibeonites say, oh, man, they're weaker now. Let's make a break for it. Let's join the enemies of Israel now that they are triumphant over them. No. They remain on the battlefield. They remain loyal. What happened when Israel was taken, Judah was taken into captivity? Into Babylon for 70 years. Did the Gibeonites abandon ship? Did they leave the battlefield? No. We are told in Nehemiah that they went into captivity with Israel, with Judah and, and Benjamin and came back. They were numbered amongst, amongst Nehemiah, uh, the, the, the genealogy that Nehemiah laid out. Gibeonites were numbered and they went back to the surface as drawers of water and hewers of wood. You see, these men, the Rechabites, the Gibeonites, the sons of Asaph, whom David had ascribed and assigned the role of playing songs in the temple and tabernacle of God. He had assigned them the role of writing and maintaining songs, maintaining the instruments of music that they might play songs of melody to words of doctrinal, spiritual, and uplifting words. Do you believe that through all of the generations of Israel, the house of Asaph is one of the few houses that remain loyal? Who do you think Psalm 137 is writing about? In Babylon, where they hang their harps in the willows, they require of us a song. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? That was the sons of Asaph. And when Nehemiah and Ezra came back to rebuild and dedicate the temple, who you think were there? Where did those men learn? You think they suddenly rose up and rewrite songs and learn to play music? They continue practicing and playing music. They remain ready on the battlefield. These are some examples that we can use through scriptures to answer and address that mind-boggling question. Who will remain on the battlefield? See, the objective of the Mosaic instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 58, are similar in, in, in intention as those of the Apostle Paul under the divine inspiration. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 27 to 32, and we might turn to that now because 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and many a time this, these verses, are read at the memorial service. And the reason why I'm bringing them, bringing them in here is because too often, too many people 
believe that the Old Testament is archaic and done with. And yet the New Testament and its laws and principles stands upon the foundation of the Old Testament. The New Testament, the epistles, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ were the spirit of the legality of the laws of Moses. Ye do err in not understanding the scriptures. Go and learn what is meant. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, says the Lord Jesus Christ. To Nicodemus, he spoke the spiritual aspect of the Mosaic law. Jesus lived the spiritual aspect of the Mosaic law. It is in this capacity that we today, my dear friends, are asked to put flesh upon the bones of the Mosaic law. Now let us go to that quote, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, that many of us are familiar with. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. I want you to bring us, I want, I want to bring us again full circle back to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 1. Now here's another powerful question. Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 1. And this was the opening salvo of what shook me to ask a very powerful question. I asked myself this. The angel of God's presence, which some says could be Michael the archangel, but which we read of very clearly in Ezekiel in, in Exodus chapter 23. He declared that when they go out to battle against the enemies and see the horses, not to be afraid. He told them in verse 4: For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now I want you to come down. To verse 7. Bear in mind verse 1, verse 3. I know I want us to look at verse 7, the last line. Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. Verse 6. Lest he die in battle and another man eat of it. Verse 5. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicated. So that moved me to ask this question. If the angel of God's presence is going to be on the battlefield with these, the children of Israel, and it is he that is going to fight on their behalf, and as he has so professionally and exceptionally done before, in the matter of destroying the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, in the matter of decimating Egypt, in the matter of slaughtering the Amalekites, this 
moved me to ask the question, how is it that if these men that had a house, had a vineyard, had a wife, and were fearful, how is it that they're going to die on the battlefield? Couldn't the angel save them? Could he come to their rescue? Could he put a cordon of support around them? Couldn't he save them in battle like he did with Joseph? But then here's the deep and sobering thought. Remember one of those eight points that we pointed out? Serving two masters. Now picture an individual on the battlefield and his loyalty and his mind is not fully focused and vested on that battle. He's fighting with that battle, but he's thinking about that brand new house, that big mansion. He's fighting on that, on that battlefield, but he's wondering who's stealing his grapes and whose animals are trotting down his vineyard. He is fighting on the battlefield, but he's wondering who's giving his wife the eye. And then you have the coward. You know what the correlation between that and what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 to 32 is? You must present yourself on the battlefield with undivided loyalty. Your focus, your brain trust must be to the matter before you. Jesus says, anyone putting his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom. The issue here was not that Jesus was overriding the exceptional clause. Jesus was declaring as Paul that you are not fit for the kingdom of God when your loyalty is divided, when your attention is not focused. It is for this reason, my dear friends, that so many cannot harvest and harness the beautiful gems that are hidden in God's word because we do not like being on the battlefield, dedicate enough fortitude, enough uh, focus, time and effort into the study of God's word, into the application of God's word as we do to get that PhD and that bachelor's and that master and that new house and that career. You think that a sportsman can attain to the level of the Olympics by five or six minutes, a half an hour of practice and workouts a week? You really believe that? You really think that a weightlifter, a powerlifter can lift four, five, six, seven, eight hundred pounds? If he's given to the tiredness and the aches and pains of his muscles, don't you think that he is moved and motivated to stretch his muscles? Lift heavier and heavier loads. That the student of the best colleges or even the mediocre colleges achieves his, or his goal by burning the midnight oil, reading profusely, studying, testing, uh, 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 doing a, a test over and over again, listening attentively to the professor, taking notes. Locking himself away in the room and reading and studying, not being disturbed, turning off the television. But you are telling me, my friends, that God is not true. You are not getting anything out of the scriptures. 
You're not getting anything from the ecclesia. You're not getting anything from the speakers. But you're not applying yourself on the battlefield the same way that you apply yourselves to material and worldly endeavors. You are not. And so when people say that they're not successful in the endeavors of Almighty God, the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there's no benefit is it because they have not applied themselves. If you read the scriptures as dedicatively and study them as hard and as long, you will get the same gems and the same uh, 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 precious metals. The same upliftment of spirit that drove so many individuals to suffer death at the stake, beheadings, burning at, burning at, on, on the stake. You know, th th there was a time in Peter's life when he feared the enemy on the battlefield. He ran away from Jesus when he saw him crucified. He, he viewed him from afar off in the high priest's house. He profusely cursed and denied his maker, his, his savior. He was the last to go to the tomb. Three times after Jesus met with him after the resurrection, he still went back fishing. But is that the same man we're told was crucified upside down? The same man who could not stomach seeing Jesus on the cross? Who thought it was all lost and over? Who fled? The same man upon who Jesus says, I build my church, the rock, and the leader that he left to lead the first century ecclesia? What brought about that transformation? Aha, uh -huh. some might say, oh, but he had the gift of the Holy Spirit. But what about the medieval times? What about the Middle Ages? What about our times? There are brothers and sisters who are living testimony to the fortitude of spiritual growth, who will let nothing get in the way of them being attentive to God's work. We don't have to go all the way back to the uh, to the first century or the, or, 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 the, or the Middle Ages. What makes them different from you? The point is that they apply themselves dedicatedly. Why some just superficially play games and mockery? Apostle Paul says that you are on the battlefield when you come to the Lord's table. You have to examine yourself every first day of the week. I know I'm sounding a bit excitational here and as though you're preparing for the Lord's table. But it is for the mind of the individual who also is wondering and pondering whether he should give his life to Christ. It's a defining and turning moment. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? Will you be persuaded by the distractions that are around you, the, 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 the transi tr transitory things that are in your life? Or will you stand up for Christ? Will you accept the calling of the master? In Matthew chapter 19, verse 27 to 30, Peter said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which shall follow me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne or in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. 
And listen, everyone that has forsaken houses, isn't that one of the exemptions in Deuteronomy? Everyone that has forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many are, that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Jesus is not contradicting the Mosaic law. He's asking you to decide what is more profitable. He's asking you that when you have made your choice, don't look back. And to those souls, those brethren, those sisters, those young people who are either tinkering, tinkering on the brink, sitting, as Elijah says, hot between two opinions, for those who are the lost sheep and may be listening, I plead with you. Reconsider what you have left on the table. What you have left and what you have gone to. Jesus says, and we have seen this. If you don't believe, I always say that Joe. He's known for his patience. I always say one of the things that struck me when I came to North America, I was bombarded with insurance, life insurance sellers. You know, you get them, they knocking on your door at that time, then they're throwing flyers and, and junk mail into your mailbox. Apply for life insurance. Pay, pay $5 a month and you'll get this harvest at the end. And then when you die, they're going into hiding. You got to go through all kinds of red tape to get your dividends. I always say that Job made the best life insurance, to quote the best life insurance policy ever. And any man or woman who give his life to the Lord Jesus Christ, who accept Jesus as his personal savior, is taking out the best life insurance policy anyone can have. In that life, we are told that Job received sevenfold over what he had before. And you know what? You know what is marvelous about that, my friends? is that he will receive even more at the coming of his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. For he says, I know my Redeemer liveth. And so when Job's wife tell him, curse God and die, go off the battlefield. You're an idiot, man. Look what God's doing for you. You can't stand this battle. Job said, you speak like one of the foolish women. I'm staying on this battlefield. Bruises or no bruises. In my humility and my pain and my suffering, even though he questioned God, he questioned God wisely because he was never condemned in Job chapter 42 for the words of his mouth. His other friends were. But he reaped bountifully in this life and he will. I'm not here. Hopefully I'm not sounding like a prosperity preacher. I'm not telling you to join the Lord Jesus Christ or accept the Lord Jesus Christ in order to get some kind of uh, uh, windfall of profits. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying look for the hope of Israel, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will not, not lose. You will not lose. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I come to send, I come not to send peace, but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother. And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man foes shall be there of his own household. He that loveth 
father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. I would like to end with this quote and one more testimony from scriptures. Jesus is saying that you must love him and his way and what you have been called unto more than all of these other things. If they are so important in your life that at times you walk away from the battlefield to attend unto them and you put them in first position and God becomes secondary and tertiary in your life, then Jesus is saying, I don't want you. You have no, no benefit in my kingdom or his father's kingdom. But remember verse 39 of Matthew chapter 39, Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. I take you back to the judges. We won't turn up the passages, but you can in your free time uh, open Judges chapter 14. We read there of, of uh, Samson going down to, to, uh, to Timnath and finding a wife among the Philistines. And he married her. Then he went back home. Then he came back to consummate the marriage. And when he came in, there was a, a party. A party was going uh, being thrown for him by the family of the of the um, uh, the bride. The Philistines was there, and he gave them a riddle. And they couldn't answer the riddle. He said, "Who well, don't answer? If you don't answer the riddle, you have to give me 30, 30 quarts of milk. And if you answer it, then I have to give you." And the oppressor and the oppressor. Now she had an opportunity. Like the Gibeonites, like the Rechabites, like Uriah Hittite, to come into by a peace offer. The gospel was preached to her and her household in that endeavor. Let's leave out all the sleazy stuff we have about Samson. She had an opportunity to be in, inculcated into the house of Israel. You know what she did? She chose. What was her choice? She pressed Samson. You don't love me if you don't help me to betray you. And she sold him out. She gave the Philistines the secret. And Samson had to go down and slaughter them to get the coat of mail. And then there was another confrontation with Samson. Now, you know what? You recall in the first incident when Samson refused, was refusing to tell her the answer to the riddle? She told Samson, you don't love me. Why are you going, why are you going to let the Philistines burn me and my family, burn down the house around me and my family. Please tell me the secret. So her endeavor was by betraying Samson, she was seeking to not have her family burnt and the house burnt down. And she figured she accomplished that. She betrayed and offered peace the gospel that she might save her life. Let me reread the sentence, the verse again, so we don't lose where I'm going with this. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. You know what was the end result of Samson's wife? When he went down and found that if, because he had not visited in a while, that the parents had given her to a Philistine man, Samson was angry. He took 300 foxes, tied their tails together, put firebrands between their tails, and let them loose through the corn and the wheat fields of the Philistine and burned them down. 
The Philistines inquire, who did this? They said, because Samson's wife, parents, gave her to a Philistine, Samson burned them down, burned down our fields. The Philistines in anger rose up, went to her and her parents' house and burned them alive and burned down the house. The moral of that lesson is brought out in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. Her endeavors to save her family and her house from being burnt is exactly what happened to her and her family. Young people, my friends, the exploits and the genius thinking of your mind to avoid Christ, to make another oath or vow or commitment with the world, and thinking that you are going to be richer, wealthier, have longevity in this world, may in the end cost you your life by the very means that you are pursuing a worldly living. With those thoughts, with those words, I hope I have not wasted your time. I hope that I have brought you or whet your appetite to the profound messages that can be found in the law and that some soul, some person out there might understand that there is a choice to remain on the battlefield, but the decision is with you, not the officers that give the message, the message, not the messenger. Do not stone the messenger. Walk back to the house of God. Share sweet fellowship. Listen to the preaching and the word of the gospel. Embrace it. Accept it that you may have life and have it more abundantly. With that, I close and bid you God's peace.